you could assume that that there are you know famines and skirmishes and issues that that we're not covering because we're just covering or we're mainly covering Trump. So you know it's, it's something that we should worry about. Although as I said, it is very important to be dogged in uh, holding leaders accountable, particularly leaders who are doing things that are so unconventional and his critics would argue are dangerous. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. On the phone with me today is David Mindich, a professor of media studies, journalism, and digital arts at St. Michael's College in Vermont. And he's soon to be a professor and chairman of the Temple University Department of Journalism. Welcome back to the podcast, David. Thank you. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new career move to Temple. So what prompted that change? Well, I've been a small-town college professor here in Vermont for 21 years, and I've loved every moment of it. And it's been great to be part of the conversation about journalism and politics in Vermont. And I've been able to comment on national politics as well, but based in a small state has been great, and I've raised my kids here. But I'm returning to city life. I grew up in New York City, and I'm excited to have a bigger platform, in part because of the national politics are increasingly important, I think, since the election of Trump. And I think it's a great way to step up to a larger soapbox and talk about the importance of journalism and democracy, particularly in this time. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah. And the reason, um, you know, this is sort of a follow-up. Some of you may remember that David and I spoke back in August 2016, much, much more innocent times back then. We were talking about Columbia Journalism Review article that David wrote about objectivity in the presidential campaign, in particular how the press was covering then-candidate Donald Trump. So looking back, David, it seems like a completely different world, (laughs) don't you think? Right. You know, I mean, and in part, during that time, there was a lot to criticize journalism, including the $2 billion of estimated free airtime that particularly television journalism gave to um, then-candidate Donald Trump. There was a real worry that nothing could enter the national political discussion without mentioning Trump. Now Trump is president, and he deserves you know, all the airtime he gets because <laughs> we we all need to cover him and pay attention to him. Yeah, and I know I, part of the discussion that we had back then was how much scrutiny he was get in, com- in comparison to his opponent, uh, Secretary Clinton. And the fact that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, is too much of the political discussion turning toward Trump? You know, Trump had become sort of the centerpiece of the campaign, and that was what everybody seemed to be focusing on. Fo- focusing on. And there were people who were criticizing the press for, you know, focusing too much on him and not so much on the issues or, or you know, stop giving him airtime because he tweeted something strange. But in, in many ways, it doesn't seem like that's changed too much. I mean, the difference being that he's president. Right. And, you know, um, we're now faced with what some have called, and I think that this is a fair assessment, you know, Watergate-level questions. You know, we don't want to presume that he or his campaign staff in any way are guilty of collusion but with the Russians in the run-up to the election. But there are questions out there about whether what their involvement was and whether there was collusion. And if the answer to the collusion question is yes, 
then we're, we're, we have a scandal that rivals and perhaps even exceeds Watergate, and, and we need to be paying attention. Yeah. And so how have you seen, I mean, has the press coverage really changed much since the campaign and the election, or are we still sort of in the, the are we more dogged, are we more reactionary? You know, what's your take? Well, you know, certainly the negative of all the attention is that that there are issues around the world that aren't being covered. Stephen Colbert joked about this a few weeks ago in a, in a monologue, it's like saying that, you know, here's a really funny story that I'm not covering, and I'm very upset with Trump over this, you know. There's uh, not only TV um, comedians, but also journalists are focusing on the Trump administration. And you could assume that, that there are, you know, famines and skirmishes and issues that, that we're not covering because we're just covering or we're mainly covering Trump. So, you know, it's, it's something that we should worry about. Although, as I said, it is very important to be dogged in holding leaders accountable, particularly leaders who are doing things that are so unconventional and his critics would argue are dangerous. Well, and there were people early in his presidency or even right after the election, you know, well, let's give him a chance. Let's let him, you know, rise or fall by just give him uh, some time to to get his foot into footing and to move forward. But, you know, he was very adversarial of the press and and the press was very adversarial with him. Certainly, as things around the the Russia investigation have sort of become more to light, attention pretty much daily on everything that's going on in the administration is dominating, you know, most of the the main national news coverage. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's the dialogue we're we're all involved in. That's right. I've often thought about the Bechtel test, where this is it Allison Bechtel, the um, oh yeah, the, the playwright who talks about movies and says that, you know, a movie passes the Bechtel test that there are two women who can talk about something that's not involving the leading character. So it's a, it's a feminist critique of modern filmmaking. In the same way, we can, you know, do like a modified Bechtel test about are there any stories that don't involve Trump, you know, and maybe a newspaper would pass the test if it ran a story or two on the front page that doesn't involve Trump. And, you know, I think there are many days when you look at the Washington Post or the New York Times or many other papers, and everything seems to be dominated by the administration. There are many things that are happening on a local level, which we should be concentrating on more as well. But, you know, one of the things that unique about this presidency is unlike uh, Nixon's presidency, which for the most part, responded to facts with facts, you know, this has really become maybe the most fact-free presidency that in modern times. But then the other side of it is, you know, some can ar- some argue that it's also the mes- most transparent, that the fact that, you know, minute to minute, whether we want it or not, we can get the thoughts of the president in reaction to stories or spins on stories you know we, we don't have yep. to we don't have to wait for for something to come through you know barriers of uh, of press you know secretaries press agents but it's actually we are to believe these are the thoughts of of the president the moment he thinks them and, and tweets them out yeah i think that's fair i think that that is a very transparent presidency in that way transparent in that we're getting the latest thoughts transparency we also sometimes think of transparency as as helping us understand the facts that went into decisions. And again, facts are 
facts are very slippery in this administration. Yeah. And then transparency about what exact who exactly talked to the Russians and what did they say, those facts are hard to come by as well. So, you know, we are getting minute by minute his latest tweets, which is great. I mean, it's great from the perspective of knowing what's on his mind at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. But in terms of getting an honest and full picture, part of what we think of when we think of transparency would be that. And I don't think we're getting that. And quite often you'll get you'll get policy papers and position papers and, and memos, et cetera, that are that are, are speaking something different than the tweets. So then unless the public and the press wonder, OK, well, which is real, which is which do we believe and, you know, you had mentioned it for, before about the, the lack of facts many times or the, the outright sort of challenging that things are, are not factual or, or fake, that the, you know, fake news organizations, very adversarial. What, what are your thoughts about that, the, the president being – I mean, this isn't the f- first president who's had an argument with the press. But, I mean, from, from the campaign to today, I mean, he, he ha- he's very confrontational with uh, the mainstream media. And the confrontational is, you know, certainly uh, Lyndon Johnson called up, you know, presidents of news organizations and would curse them out for coverage. The My Lai coverage, he cursed out Frank Stanton, the president of CBS News, who in turn was upset with Morley Safer, the reporter who broke the story. So, you know, presidents have been pressuring the press forever. You know, that was just a question not of factual accuracy, but like the, you know, a uh, a proper criticism of the presidency and the president pulling, you know, pushing back against that criticism. Here, it really is pushing back at the whole institution of journalism. And that's, you know, calling the New York Times habitually the fake New York Times or the failing New York Times. First of all, it's wrong. The New York Times is doing pretty well now since Trump. And also the New York Times and the Washington Post and some others have been doing exceptional journalism and getting these amazing stories day after day. It's it's kind of like an old newspaper war, but not in a town or city, but nationally. You see like these, the New York Times and the Washington Post day after day, like just beating each other. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. The, well, the Post and uh, the New York Times, and I think also the uh, Wall Street Journal ha- have seen yep. a rise in their, their digital subscriptions. So Trump is good business. And I can sort of say, I think sort of in my way off the record here about Federal News Radio, and we cover the federal government in a, in a in a non-political way, but the fact is, is that Trump's policies impact, you know, federal managers, our readers. So, you know, we've seen increased readership around stories that involve Trump and Trump policy. I was at uh, an event where I, I spoke to the political editor of, of a large publication, uh, online publication, and I asked him, you know, like, well, what do you think this is all going to do? And he just sort of looked at me and says, well, this is this is going to be a, a business model for the next four years for for journalism and maybe the next eight years, and uh, which I thought was rather <laughs> cynical. I'm not sure I'm that cynical, but it's proved to be that way in these you know first few months for some uh, media outlets. Yeah, and you know I don't know about you, but I've seen a bunch of my friends who didn't who are not journalists or journalism professors who have been announcing on Facebook that they're 
in addition to giving charity, they're getting a subscription to a new paper. Like, uh, you know, I live in New York, but I'm subscribing to the Washington Post because they're, they're great because of their great journalism. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you usually reserve for charities. Like, I'm going to give money to a charity at the end of the year. That journalism is seen in the same category as charities by many is, I think, a really good thing because, you know, you're giving to something that serves the public good. I mean, you wouldn't say, you know, at the end of the year, I'm going to give some extra money to Walmart, even though, you know, nothing against Walmart, but it's not a it's not a company that you think, well, we, we really need Walmarts in this time of democracy being challenged. I mean, we, people are throwing money at news organizations and PR and nonprofit news organizations you know, the high quality uh, journalism, which is a business model, but it's also like it's a challenge to people who are thinking about business models because, you know, your typical, I'm, I live in a town which is served by the Burlington Free Press. No one's giving the Burlington Free Press its charity money, their charity money, because the Free Press is not really seen as, you know, this part of this hard-hitting journalism that's holding leaders accountable. So it may be that papers like the Burlington Free Press and others need to really start selling that and really being that bulwark against people who threaten democracy. So the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post are going to benefit from that, but we really need to see that happen on a more local level too. And we also need to see new journalists promoting new models that are more like the uh, National Public Radio, a PBS model, where people will actually not only be a subscriber, but a member. Yeah, I agree that, uh, you know, we, we can we can't look at the big, you know, the big boys in journalism, and they're going to do fine. But it's it's the local journalists. And, and what's what's interesting is if you really kind of break it down is the reason we're, that we're in a lot of the political s- situation that we are is that much of the local journalism, the local news and government reporting, political reporting, kind of shrank because of what happened to the news industry, that a lot of big city dailies, um, a lot of uh, weekly papers, you know, they folded up, they contracted their staffs, and so they were maybe not going as deep. And where you need that local journalism is in the state house, is in the local elections, when the lines are being drawn for the different di- districts, you need to have the local press there to yep. report on that, to make sure that's going, because in the end, that's what's going to affect who's going to be in Congress, you know, and, and how things are going to uh, be sort of divided up in each state. So journalism has to work, you know, top to bottom for it to work well, for democracy in America to work well. So hopefully, hopefully, as you said, we'll get some new models out of this that people will look to local journalism, to alternative press even, to try to bolster that coverage? No, you know, the new model, I think, may include um, constituting communities in the same way that Jay Rosen uh, and others in the 1990s were pushing public journalism, where if you do a story and there's no reaction in a community, then maybe you need to talk about assembling groups to, you know, discussion groups holding forums, actually physical forums in downtown, um, and, you know, try to have democracy in action in these forums and these sponsored events that that really puts you firmly in the democracy business. You know, I think that that's something that 
that journalists really need to grapple with. Like, how do we see, how do we, as the, the public perceive us as an institution that's as important as City Hall and, and other institutions? Uh, and, it's, and it's not only the journalists' responsibility in this area, it's also educators, parents, and, you know, just in general, we as citizens, to understand that journalism plays a crucial role. And you're right that, you know, the national uh, papers are going to do just fine, but we also need to care about uh, statehouse reporting and, and other things like that. In Vermont, um, interestingly enough, there was a bit of a decline in statehouse reporting, but um, we have an alternative weekly that's very vibrant, um, that's added statehouse reporting, which is very unusual. And then we have a nonprofit news organization, uh, a full disclosure disclosure, I'm on the board. It's called VT Digger that has, I think, four or five people in the state capital, which represents a, a pretty good percentage of statehouse reporters. So and that's all changing in the last few years, and it's been a really exciting time to see new models, but we need to care about you know community journalism all across the nation. Yeah, and we can look at, at sort of the, the changes that have come out um, since the election and you know we we just talked about you know how the big papers are, are seeing their subscription rates go up um, but there's also this sense of you know maybe we need especially when people are talking about fake news that maybe we need more literacy of you know what what is news what is fact you know and that's something that we need to have through our educational system and then likewise you know you know I, I, you get this sort of sense that not only are people supporting you know, newspapers that are that are sort of involved in this political dialogue, but also maybe they're looking in their communities and trying to get more involved at a grassroots level, which I think is another way. You know, get getting involved in a grassroots level in a political sense, or or, or community organizing things like that. So, you know, that's a, that's another way that you know democracy can sort of grow from the ground up. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, th- these are really exciting times. I mean, we. Since the election, I mean, the day after the inauguration, there were larger protests than than I've ever seen in, in my life, and I'm I'm 54 years old. I mean, I, I kind of vaguely remember uh, protests in the 60s, but um, but at least since the 60s, I haven't seen you know this much protest activity in my in my life. And that's it's exciting. Yeah. And and when when you have all that protest activity, that means that democracy is more vibrant, and we need journalism more than ever before. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and then people are going to value it. Now, I'm I'm a similar age to you. It's pretty incredible seeing the tenor of political discussion that's going on right now, and just the concern that that people have about what's going on in their communities. Uh, locally, but also, you know, certainly nationally and internationally as well over the last month or so as, you know, as the Russia, the Russian thing sort of royals and and the president goes on his first foreign trip. Now, is between when we spoke last and now you you had a, a class uh, where you were talking about was it political journalism? Is that what the, the focus was? Yeah, it was uh, media and, and American politics. And we look at how uh, we look at the coverage uh, political coverage and how journalists, uh, uh, politicians get their message through. And it's always an interesting class to teach, particularly around an election. So, yeah, this was, a, I would imagine, a rich, uh, not quite like any other period of time to teach a class like that. What was the experience like? You know, we, we talked a lot about news, uh, a lot about fake news, a lot about how you investigate 
something like this Russia story. We talk about all the president's men and how careful they were, both the New York Times and the Washington Post, in assembling the Watergate narrative. And then, you know, there's this great scene in All the President's Men, the movie, and also in the book, where Woodward and Bernstein drew a conclusion that Sloan had named Haldeman, but in fact it turned out not to be true. And and the concept is that, you know, if you shoot too far and you miss, in the words of their informant, Deep Throat, Mark Felt, that you set back the investigation. So, you know, part of what's been really interesting to follow journalistically when people are exploring the the Russia connections is how careful journalists are not to overshoot. And when the White House sees something that might be wrong, they'll pounce on that to kind of call into question all the other claims in articles. So the interplay between these two is interesting, but between the journalists and the White House is interesting, and, and students really were particularly interested in, in that aspect. What's fascinating is what's politically what's gone on and journalistically what's gone on over the last few months, especially when you compare it to something like the, the Watergate thing, which sort of unfolded over a couple of years in different ways, that there's a deliberate pace to the way government is dealing with this and is investigating this. And there has to be journalistically a sort of deliberate pace to how they cover it so that they do what you, you say, so they don't screw things up, they don't push things back. But on the other hand, what we didn't have during Watergate was this 24-hour news cycle. It's this constant need to, you know, what's the latest? You know, what what's gonna, you know, what did he tweet this time? You know, what's the big thing? You know, what should I be worried about next? And it, it's been interesting to see how that's sort of been balanced between the government investigators and Congress and uh, the press. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, you know, it comes back to something you, you just said a few minutes ago about media literacy. And there are different ways to look at media literacy in dealing with this, this stress. So, like, most of my friends, whether they're Trump supporters or not, and, and most of my friends are not Trump supporters, <laughs> but, but most of my friends are quite apart from their criticism of Trump, they're also just unnerved by the the level of news. And and I see on social media that people are saying, well, you know, I'm taking a, a news break and that's, you know, it's, it's a mental health break. And, you know, there's something to be said in terms of if you're looking at the media in general, that it's good to step away and, and not be wired all the time. And I think media literacy people would say that, you know, don't you shouldn't be consuming media all the time. On the other hand, we, if we make the distinction between news media, uh, sorry, um, uh, media literacy and news literacy, the people who consider themselves experts in news literacy don't say step away from the media fully. They say you need to stay engaged in news as a subset, or journalism as a subset of media, because it's important for democracy. So it's important to not be overwhelmed by the level of energy in this current administration and how things change all the time. And, you know, we all need to take mental health breaks and, you know, go camping or go for a bike ride or meditate or do something where we're not looking at a screen. But yet it's also important for us to stay engaged because 
the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post uh, can do all the journalism they want, but if the public doesn't pay attention, they're basically writing a diary and they're not, you know, they're not really holding leaders accountable. It's it's not only their reporting, but our attention to their reporting that will make a difference. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, interviewed for the podcast Gregory Corte, who's the USA Today White House reporter, and I interviewed him. It was like, um, I think maybe nine days after the inauguration, and he came in here on like a Sunday morning, and he was like, yeah, I've been going since the inauguration. I haven't had a day off. And he was like, you know, everything is is going really quickly, and, and it was sort of this pressure, but... I, I would hope <laughs> that that he's he and other reporters have found some time to cool down and uh, you know declutter their brains a little bit so they can uh, yes. can they maintain their focus because that's the other thing it was this sort of this this constant I remember coming out the first couple of months there was this sort of constant I don't know tension <laughs> about everything and it was like what's next what do, what do I need to pay attention to next and, and it's fatiguing as well. You know, again, we're going back to the deliberate pace of things. Things are going to resolve, resolve themselves one way or the other, the way they're going to do it, and they're going to do it at their own pace. That being said, I mean, you know, we've got a this week when we're recording this. You know, um, former FBI director, you know, Comey is going to be testifying, and there, there's been, you know, I just we have, uh, you know, CNN on, you know, on the screen here at work, and it's they are just constantly running the same headline. You know, Comey is going to. Um, uh, going to testify. What's it going to be? And, you know, just day after day after day. And so just, you know, that goes back to this idea that we have we have to feed this beast. But if there's no new news, if there's no new angle or, or no new tweet to write out, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. And part of that also is, you know, probably CNN could take a little bit more time and talk about the implications of walking away from the Paris Agreement, for example, and maybe looking ahead at Comey might in some way up their ratings because people are looking for the next thing. But I think we all need, not only CNN, but all of us need to be thoughtful as well and not be so caught up in the moment or what's happening next, what's happening today, and really take a step back and, and, and look at trends and look at issues thoughtfully. That's a challenge in a in a White House that is so reactive and, you know, there's just a tweet um, this week. Been a bunch of tweets that that have gotten our attention, including you know Trump criticizing the mayor of London for saying that we shouldn't panic. Um, you know, I mean that that certainly shows Trump's craziness. But we have to wonder whether how long we should linger on that rather than let something like that. The Paris Accords, which really could have an impact on, you know, our children, our children's children. What's weird is, is that the president saying something outrageous is something that would naturally draw your attention. But since it happens so frequently, on the one hand, you have to, you have to acknowledge that it's the president saying this, the, the, the leader of the, the free world who's, who's, who's saying this, that's significant. And the fact that it's outrageous is significant. When can I stop panicking about it and actually move on to the next more important story that actually may have a more immediate concern? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're um, an immigrant, someone, let's say, who doesn't have papers or, you know, you're not sure about what the papers, protections the papers would, would confer, I mean, you really are living 
you know, say you're a Muslim without papers in the United States today, or even a Latin American uh, immigrant, you know, you really are living in a heightened sense sense of uh, concern and maybe panic even, and that's not going to go away so soon. But uh, it, you know, it is it is important to, to try to find some peace as well because no no one it's not healthy to live in a constant state of uh, adrenaline rush it's hard to look back over our history and try to think of another president who would criticize somebody for for telling people not to panic that seems like <laughs> it seems like a very unusual thing to say if you you put it in context when you think of the, you know there was a man in the office in that office who said that we have nothing to fear but fear itself um, now we have somebody right. saying, fear things. You need to fear things. We, it, uh, we've we come quite a long way, yeah. I think. Well, David, this has been great. I'm glad we were able to to, to get caught up and, and see what's going on with you. I, I, you know, I wish you well on your, your new venture at Temple. It sounds really exciting. Uh, as you said, these are exciting times. This is a, a great time for you to jump into the big arena and uh, you know offer your, your take on things going forward. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Next time on It's All Journalism. You know, people who might feel like the well has been poisoned at the national level where there's just you know, not any trust necessarily for either side of the, you know, what they see as partisan national media outlets, but where they, you know, somehow need to find out what's going on locally. And so they may have a shared local source. They may have, you know, some things that they wish were a little stronger or maybe have some resource issues, but they there seems to be an appetite for for more in that area. And particularly, I mean, people that care about their communities, you know, if there's ways that they're able to work on projects that, you know, help their communities across party lines, there's, I think, more commitment and interest in exploring that in a way that is kind of challenging to do at the national level. Join us next week for a conversation with Andrea Wenzel, a senior fellow at the Tao Center. She tells us about one Chicago radio station's experiment in solutions journalism. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media makers and journalism that matters. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Podcast One. Nicole Grisco edited this week's episode. Amber Healy wrote the web story, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can pre-order a copy of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting at itsalljournalism.com. When you get there, follow the link at the top of the page. And while you're there, why not leave a comment or subscribe to our weekly news alerts? You can also find us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.
the What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.